Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front, and they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company, and if you enter the code ZIBBY, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. I'm really excited to be interviewing Richard Kirschenbaum today. He is an ad man, author, and entrepreneur. His latest book, Rouge, a novel of beauty and rivalry, has already been optioned by Sony Pictures. He also wrote a book called Isn't That Rich? Life Among the 1%, based on his columns for the New York Observer. It sold to ABC Studios. He also wrote Under the Radar, talking to today's cynical consumer, Closing the Deal, Two Married Guys Reveal the Dirty Truth to Getting Your Man to Commit, and Mad Boy Beyond Mad Men. And he's an accomplished playwright. He founded Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners ad agency when he was just 26 years old and is currently the CEO and founder of NSG slash SWAT, a high-profile boutique branding agency. He is also the co-founder of Blackwell Fine Jamaican Rum. Richard co-founded SWAT Equity, which invests in emerging consumer brands. A graduate of Syracuse University, he currently lives in New York with his wife and three children. Welcome, Richard. Moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much for coming. I'm so delighted. So nice to be here. Oh. <laughs> in your amazing library, by the way. And this is like really sort of a mitzvah that you're doing by being here on a Friday afternoon in June. <laughs> so I'm particularly grateful that you made the time for this. So I'm thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> um, so your latest book is called Rouge, a novel of beauty and rivalry, which was really just delicious and wonderful. Um, tell me about what inspired you to write Rouge and what it's about. Well, Rouge is really about the women um, who created the uh, cosmetic industry, uh, the first multi-billion dollar category founded primarily by women. And I have to tell you that I was surprised that there wasn't really a major novel about the book before, you know. And I, being an ad man Mm -hmm. and having run everything from Avon to Revlon, you know, as accounts, um, and having worked with many, many, many well-known female entrepreneurs, I thought this was the book that I needed to write. It's really an homage to all the amazing female entrepreneurs who founded this ama- uh, this incredible category. Amazing. But why why now? Why this book right now in your life? What made um, you do it? What made you say, okay, this is the story. I really want to tell it, and I've got to get this one out. It's about growth, and it's about evolution. I had a column that I was... Uh, writing for the New York Observer, which got a lot of attention. It was called Isn't That Rich? Life Among the 1%. And I wrote that for a number of years, and it turned into a book, and the book got sold to ABC. It was a book of essays. But I always wanted to do a novel, and I always wanted to do a novel of the ilk Mm -hmm. that... I grew up with, you know, with these amazing authors like Sidney Sheldon and Judith Krantz and Dominic Dunn and um, Truman Capote and, you know, Philip Roth and all these people. I mean, they're all very different, but those were books you couldn't put down. And I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. But people aren't writing those kind of books today as much anymore, you know. And so I really, really wanted to do um, a juicy beach read, but that also, you know, hopefully was well written. It Definitely was well written. It was Thank great. You. It was amazing. Um, 
there, in one description, it said it was sort of based on real life rivals Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. True, not true. Well, I used a lot of source material. I mean, when I write, when you do a based on novel, personally, I like to do composite characters. So yes, those women I researched and they're amazing. And uh, the character of Josephine is a little bit more based on Helena, who is amazing. But, you know, for the most part, they're compilations. And they're also people, I always, when I write a book, I always think about or create characters, think about who the person is in my head. Mm -hmm. And then I um, have a visual of a person and then I can create the character better about that. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I was trying to think, I know this has been optioned by Sony already. Congratulations, that's awesome. So I was trying to think of who I would cast so in case you want to make me your casting director, I was thinking, and you tell me what you think, I was thinking Charlize Theron for Constance Gardner and Rachel Weisz as Josephine. I mean, it's great casting choices. Thank you. I have you. to tell you, okay. they really are perfect. And um, I think the question really is uh, how uh, Wendy Feinerman, who's the legendary producer of Forrest Gump and won the Academy Award for that, and uh, The Devil Wears Prada, I mean, she may have... Um, I, I'm sure she would consider those people to be perfect. Um, but, at, you know, at the end of the day, I have the saying, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I've never done a f- film before. So I, I have been saying to Wendy a lot. This is my, 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 my quote that I say to her. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just happy to be working with you. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, you don't have to force these down her throat. It's fine. I'll, 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 de- I'll defer to her. But they're perfect characters. That's just how you I had the perfect actresses for the roles. On, uh, what, yes. you had, what you had written. Yes. Um, so, one of the two women who starts off with the name Josiah in Poland, who then rebrands herself Josephine later in the book, uh, she starts work at her uncle's store in Melbourne after she's forced to flee from Poland due to. Jewish persecution at the time. So she learns a lot on the sales floor, including, and I quote, that the lady customers all had a version of the same gripe. Their husbands had wandering eyes and too many women to wander too. So much so that their souls were withering because of the atrophy and the competition. So I was wondering if you think this is, is this what inspires women to shop for makeup even now? Or what part of shopping for makeup and beauty do you think is for other women? You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful, insightful question. I think that, well, first of all, when the period that we're talking about is sort of pre, you know, mass makeup and so, you know, and the changing roles of women in society. So in many ways, um, this is a whole generation of most women who didn't work and were homemakers, you know, for the most part, except for these women who really, you know, stood out. Um, And so you know, perhaps makeup may have had a different role in their lives at that time. Today, I don't view it that way as much. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm the first generation of men to have worked for the first generation of female executives and entrepreneurs. And I think that really makeup and the fascination with makeup is really about being the best version of yourself. And in some ways, it's armor, and at the end of the book, and I don't want to say what happens at the end of the book, but there's one line that I really, I, I don't know, when I wrote it, I was really, and when I reread it, I was, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. When there, certain women are taking out their compacts, uh, I use the word artillery. Mm-hmm. And so I think that today, working women who, and also homemakers who are working, and I've worked for so many and with so many, you know, I think that they are forced to confront different issues in terms of both social, both running their businesses, the balance between, you know, family life and business life in a different way. 
than perhaps their parents or grandparents did. So, you know, perhaps makeup serves a different function for them, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, I've talked and I've been in focus groups <laughs> with, you know, all across, you know, when I was running these major, you know, cosmetic uh, accounts and women would talk about what the, how they used makeup and how they perceived makeup. And in many ways, I, it's it's not as much for the other. It's in many ways, it's for themselves and also in, for other women too. I mean, that's really interesting. You know, I, I hear that all the time. You know, sometimes women will say that they dress for other women, whereas men think they dress for them. And so that's a great insight, I think. Hmm. Well, who knows what these ladies had in mind. I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> so Constance's need for success comes at the expense of her own true soul, basically, her own sexuality even, her own relationships. It's very extreme, sort of what she's willing to put aside to achieve what she wants to professionally. Even when she starts working for Dr. Osborne when she's only 22, you write, Constance was no stranger to the unwanted advances of young men, but she had learned to tune out the effects. Certain sacrifices were necessary to achieve one's goals. So I wanted to know which sacrifices you think are most often sacrificed for success and also maybe what some of yours have been along the way. Yeah, I think it's an, another incredible question, very insightful. I mean, I really writing at a different I'm time period. I'm having you on period. the show every day. <laughs> no, no. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a different time period. And it's when very few women, and this is 1920s during Prohibition, when very few women first entered the workforce. You know, during the war years, it was different because men went off to war and women, you know, f- filled the, those roles. But this is a time when, you know, there were, there were fewer women who did that. So I think that some of the ideas of how, in, in some ways, I wanted to create these complex characters and put them into situations where they expose the truth of what they had to go through at that time. So there's no judgment about it. And I think that's, you know, interesting today, especially. Um, uh, these are women who were pragmatic, who did what they had to do in order to succeed. And so when we say sacrifices, the sacrifices may have included unwanted advances, you know, but they persevered. And I have spoken with women of that generation who've told me that that's how they dealt with it. So I didn't want to, let's say, gloss over it or make it romantic because that would be inauthentic to what they had to go through. And so I wanted it to be real. And I wanted their, let's say, um, experiences, you know, to be real. So when we talk about things like LGBT issues in the book or racism or anti-Semitism, I did not sugarcoat it. And I think that um, I wanted to, you know, the language that's used, the way that people talked about other people. I mean, it was in some ways hard to write, but I thought it was important. It came across as very... Like, you just felt like you were in the room at all those times, especially that police station scene with her brother. Right. Um, anyway, that was really good. Anyway, oh, I have a question about that. You have a scene set in 1929 in New York City um, when Constance is bailing her brother James out of prison. He was caught in what you called a lewd act, and you said how at that time police raids on bathhouses and bars and um, were much more common. I mean, obviously now they're not really common at all. Um, so... Constance doesn't disclose to her brother that they have the same sort of sexual proclivities, which I also thought was really an interesting decision. How do you think something like that might go down these days? Like what, or what do you think that did to her? Sort of how do you think somebody functions when they're going through life not sharing with even like their closest family members what's going on? 
Well, I That's also, a rambling question. Yes. But. I mean, I think that, you know, certain people are expressive and certain people come from cultures that are very closed. So the, the character of Constance, who is essentially, you know, turns out to be the belle of New York and Palm Beach society, the blonde goddess, you know, she, you know, and married to one of the great old families in New York and has the name and the social position. She is secretly a lesbian. And so there was tension there, right? And I thought characters write the book. So what would Constance do? Mm-hmm. Well, Constance really wouldn't talk about it. I mean, that's really it is. It's sort of like this old, and, and again, you know, having friends of all different um, ilks and, and religions and backgrounds, you know, um, and being close with them. You know, I also ask people, you know, within their culture, you know, do, you know, you talk about that in sort of like the WASP high society, you know, blue blood culture. And it's really, you know, it, during that period of time, it was really not talked about. Right. So that's one of the reasons why Constance as a character doesn't share with her brother. And so again, you know, would it, be different today. Of course it would be different today. But at that time, I wanted to show what women went through and what everyone is complex in the book and everyone has to deal with certain things, you know, and and the the inside versus the outside persona. And I want to go back because I feel like you dodged the question about any sacrifices you may have made yourself, or maybe I just skipped over it. But I feel like everybody in their career has to put something aside, maybe that they, I don't know. Do you have any that you want to share? If not, I'll skip it. Um, have I made, have I had sacrifices? Yeah. What do you think? What is what has your success come at the expense of? Yes, I mean, I think when when I was a young young man growing up, everyone in my culture, my background, was raised to be doctors, lawyers, accountants, and so I was raised in that culture. And so, being a creative person, I was heavily criticized. People didn't understand me. I think that, you know, within the world and the social, you know, structure that I grew up in, you know, I did not have a lot of positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And so, and the criticism continued. So, you know, I was always sort of like the freaky creative guy, like, you know, with the long hair. And so people, you know, I heard, you you know, horrible insults about me that people just, you know, uh, would, 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 would assume it could be anything, you know, because people just didn't understand creative people, especially creative men. So I was always the person who was the oddity. And so, you know, I would say that that definitely had an effect on me. And so living in this world uptown, which is in New York City with, you know, in a very investment banker, New York City, in a certain sense, the New York City, you know, elite, if you will. I think only now with a certain level of success am I truly accepted by the other men. Do you know what I'm saying? It's really interesting because they were very quick to be dismissive. So yeah, I find that so interesting because I feel like advertising has been so glamorized. Like you started an ad agency when you were 26. I would think that all the Don Draper-esque people would just have been, you know, at I mean, your feet about that. Certain people. I always had a great relationship with the women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I always got the best seat at the dinner party because, you know, I always, you know, they always wanted to sit next to me. But in many respects, you know, some of the men were very dismissive. I will, I, I'm not going to lie. Although, and then recently people have said, well, I really respect you. And I really, if I had to do it all over again, I would 
you know, have liked to have been in a creative industry. And now there's a whole generation of these parents who are raising, quote, creative kids because everyone wants creative kids. But, you know, at the, I'm only saying at the time I, you I know, came up, mm-hmm. it wasn't as well received or as well respected. Huh. So what do you think it was that made you keep persevering? Like why? So you kept doing what your heart believed in despite everything. Well, what, I couldn't do, do anything think? else, you know? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't suited for anything else. That's the thing, you know, I was, I couldn't, you can't be what you can't be, you know? So, you know, a bird can't be a fish, you know? I mean, I think that the thing is that, you know, for me, it was always about, you know, my creative gene and reveling in in writing. And, you know, I started out as a comedy writer um, selling jokes for Joan Rivers, I, you know, at $8 a joke. And that was never going to pay my bills. So I went into the advertising business because, you know, I had a job and security and health insurance and things like that. Wait, how did you get a job writing Joan Rivers' jokes? So you were just out of college? Yeah. What happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there were, there were, well, there was your, you know, there was a circuit of people who would, in, in the comedy circuit in those days, and, you know, many of the older comedians would hang out at the Carnegie Deli, and if you were interested like in that, you know, yeah, yes. and you'd go pitch your jokes, and, you know, corned beef would be falling out of their mouths, and they'd be, well, I'll take that one, and, you know, it was, it was hysterical. You know, through people, you know, and, and friends, someone would say, oh, this comedian's looking for some material, or someone would say, oh, that person, you know, you should meet that person. So it was sort of organic in that sense. And then a few years later, since I knew her, um, I did this sort of semi-famous campaign in, you know, the 80s for a jeans company called No Excuses Jeans, I which, I, which yeah. with Gary Hart and, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Gary Hart's paramour, Donna Rice. And uh, the second person to be in the, you know, in the in the campaign was Joan. And uh, it was at a sad time in her life when Edgar died and everything like that, but she was fantastic and really, you know, wonderful person. She taught me a great lesson about writing. It was really interesting because Joan had these filing cabinets of jokes, you know, and so, and she really understood the craft of how to tell a joke. Today, you know, people like Amy Schumer and things like that, I mean, they don't, they do more monologues in a certain sense. I mean, in a certain sense, they're storytelling and they're hysterical, of course. But in that period of time, people actually told a well-crafted joke, you know. And so I think I had written a joke and Joan took me aside and said, you know, something to the effect of, Richard, I just want to say, you know, this is a lesson, you know. Um, a joke on a joke, a punchline on a punchline cancels itself out. She said, you know, you have to have one punchline. It has to sing. You know, I, I was layering all this on these punchlines on top of each other. and she's And she really helped me understand the idea of editing. And that was the first time I really understood the surgical editing is really important in writing. And had you always liked to write your whole life? Yes. Um, When other young men were playing soccer and football, you know, of course, I was the worst athlete. I was sat down in front of the manual typewriter and thought, this is for me. And then did you, when was the first time you published anything? My first published piece uh, I think, I mean, it was sort of in the school paper. And then when I went to college, you know, of course, I was the editor of the paper and things like that. So, I mean, it was sort of like a little slow build, you know. And now you've written fiction, nonfiction, mm-hmm. written advice books about dating, yeah. business, <laughs> this like fiction, this novel throughout decades of inside women's lives. And mm-hmm. you're just like multi-talented in this way. Did you ever get formal writing training? Is there a particular type of writing you like the most? I never got formal writing training. I mean, I think I, I just am a voracious reader. So I love reading. And I think when you're a storyteller, a natural storyteller, when you love to tell stories, you know, it's just within you to want to tell those stories. But I think that I really hooked into something which was special with a column 
which was really about social observation. And so that's when I knew I had hit my calling and hit my stride because I was living in this world and talking about, you know, I did my first column for Isn't That Rich was called, entitled, Drivers are the New Dads. And it was really about how many families in the Upper East Side, you know, hire, you know, private drivers. And then when the parents are away, the drivers are are sent into parent or to go to go with the children to clubs. And I caused an enormous controversy and scandal that, you know, I had revealed this thing. And so people were upset about it. But and and so at the time, because I was criticized and people were telling me that I shouldn't write about things like that and expose that world. I went to my wife and I said, you know, you know, I think we're being cut socially. Like, do you have an issue with this? Should I stop? And luckily, you know, I'm married to a really strong woman. And she said, you know, nothing ever great happens if you're going to compromise. So she said, you know, don't change a word for anyone. And that really was wonderful for me. So that's why the book is really dedicated to my wife, Dana. Oh, that's great to have such an advocate. Yeah, She's, she's great. And this, the second thing she told me was, I, you know, when I started writing the column, I said, do you like it? And she said, you know, we write it. And I said, why? And she said, pretend you didn't go to Syracuse, um, although Syracuse is a good school. She goes, pretend you went to, you know, you are the, you know, the narrator in The Great Gatsby and you went to Princeton and Yale, you know, and if you can create that persona, she said, I think it would be better for you and you won't be as criticized. And she was right, you know, so I reread The Great Gatsby and... You know, I sort of up my language game a little bit and, you know, my art, you know, creating sort of more artful sensibility. And um, I think she was right. I feel like there's such a, I don't want to say discrimination against the wealthy these days, but I feel like the wealthy are constantly getting bashed for some reason or another. Do you feel like your columns added to that or not? Um, I think I've always, I always tried to have a balance between old money and new money. And I thought that was really interesting because I think that uh, that was important. You know, I never tried to only sort of cast a net against one group of people. I would say that I just hit a, let's say the cultural zeitgeist in a certain sense. And so, and I exposed behavior. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As an example, I created a word uh, for people who took selfies but did it in front of private planes I and things it. like that and coined it the wealthy. And so the New York Times picked up about it, and, you know, and then they wrote this article about it, and then it sort of got international press. So, But it's true. I mean, you know, if people want to, you know, like makeup, they want to give the, present the best version of themselves. And so, you know, they'll snap a photo in front of, you know, if they're flying, you know, flying private or they'll try to do some ridiculous thing by like you know trying to, to trying to portray this you know wonderful idyllic world so i think that's funny mm-hmm. so did i add to it perhaps but i think it's funny so back to the book a little bit yeah this this one um how long did it take you to write Rouge? And like, where and when did you write? You already run a whole branding mm-hmm. boutique firm and a private equity firm associated mm-hmm. with it where mm-hmm. you invest in companies. So you're, it's not like you're sitting around all day with tons of time to have your creative mm-hmm. outlets mm-hmm. let loose. So when do you do everything? I mean, I'm sort of a mad person, you know. So I, you know, I go to bed at 2 Okay. Or two thirty, and then I wake up at six thirty, and then I write from six thirty to eight. Then I'll go to work. Then I'll work, and then you know, one or two days a week, I'll do a writer's lunch by myself. I usually go to Irish bars and you know, fun places like named like the Thirsty Scholar or something, and you know, which which you know motivate me. And then I'll do a private lunch or in a good restaurant or you know, 
Uh, and okay, then, lunch with yourself and, yeah, and with your myself. laptop. Yes, yes, okay. on my laptop. And then I'll go back to work, and then I'll have a client dinner. Then I'll come home, and generally, you know, 12 to 1, I'll write again in the bathtub. I always write in the bathtub. I'm like, the bathtub is where I write. No way. Yeah, completely. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read that about you anywhere. That's yeah. awesome. I love it. Um, and you have kids, too. You have three children. Are yeah. they grown kids now? Or? I have my youngest is 14. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my, my twins are 19. I have twins. Oh, you do? Their birthdays today. Gemelli, as they say in Italian. <laughs> right, right, right. How old are they? They're 12 today. Wow. Yeah. You really have your hands full. Boys or girls? or? Um, I have four kids, but they're my oldest kids. Um, they're a boy and a girl. Wow. So, so we know how, how that goes. How, but 19, how, oh my gosh. Yeah. I can, uh, anyway, so you feel like you don't need the sleep? You're not tired? When I first had the twins, I was complaining. And a friend of mine said something to my second wife, Jamie, said to me, which I, lo- I loved what she said. She said, Richard? You'll never get to sleep again until they, you know, essentially are all out of the house. So just get used to it and buck up. And so I sort of then I, at that moment, like a light bulb went on and I said, you know, yeah, I'm not going to get sleep and it's not going to happen. So I might as well just make the best of it. And now you don't even need it. Well, you know, I do need it. It's really hard in the mornings, but I sort of, I just have adapted to it. It's crazy, you know, but you know, and then when you have children who come, my children came home from the first year in college and they're coming in at three and four o'clock in the morning. And so the dog barks and it, like, I'm not getting any sleep. It's really hard, you know. I read on that most successful people, the one thing they have in common, like super uber successful people, is that they don't sleep that much. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'll hopefully be in that group. <laughs> I mean, it's like I can join that group. I feel like you're in that group, but okay. <laughs> I think you need some, uh, I feel like you need to work on the self-confidence right. part here. <laughs> so I just had a question about Constance and Josie. Yes. Based on the book. If you were putting them in sort of the 1% today, yes. describe their lives to me. Where would they live? And oh, okay. Well, let's. you have to see who these women are. I mean, Constance, as I said, is the, you know, sort of the high wasp. Uh, you know, Belle of, of New York and Palm Beach Society, the horsewoman, the blonde beauty um, who has a secret, you know, her, her lesbian uh, life. Josephine is the Polish-Jewish emigre who is a more voluptuous, uh, you know, dark brunette, um, but beautiful in her own way and commanding, as she's written in the book, and more international. And so I would say that in many ways, I see Constance living in a you know Constance strives for social acceptance and c- to create an old money persona. So I would really see her living you know in a um, if she were living in New York, which I placed her, she'd be living you know in a townhouse, a red brick, the federal you know townhouse you know in the seventies between Fifth and Madison, and she she would like the privacy, and it would be you know done by one of the the interior designers who could give it an old money look, and and she would like the privacy and. Um, and she would create the illusion that it's been in the family for years and years, even though she's not from that background, but her husband is. Josephine would absolutely be living in the penthouse because she needs to be at the top. And she wants the view. And she, as the outsider who's conquered New York society with her husbands, she wants to bring in, you know, kind of this cafe society. And of course, she would have a terrace and she would do entertaining. And so she'd probably live, you know, in Park Avenue building um, um, in the 60s at that time would probably would be the ultimate for her. Um, in the book, she actually, when she's rejected from the co-op board, she actually buys the building, which is kind of a fun fact, um, which is actually based on a true story with, that happened to Helena Rubinstein, who at the time was the richest woman in the world. 
And so I think um, that's where Josephine would live. And I think that they would see each other but not see each other. So that is, you know, they would intersect somewhat socially. So, you know, that's also part of the book as well. So I feel like it's kind of a small town, New York City, in some circles. It and I is feel like a small town. with the two of them being yes. the heads of their industry. Yes. And they do intersect. They do, in some I know, ways. yes. yes. Um, um, would you ever launch the brands that you wrote about in the book as actual makeup brands? Like, would you collaborate with a makeup company? Well, I actually, uh, here's the really hard thing about writing this book, and maybe the reason why some other people never did it, is that you actually, if you're writing a book about the cosmetic industry and you're writing about the first mass market mascara, you can't, you're, you have to have a product name, and the product name cannot be, let's say, Great Lash because mm-hmm. it already exists. So it was very true to what I do in my real career, which is, you know, my working career, which is about product and naming and advertising. So I needed to actually create the products, create the campaigns. I actually had to find a name that was available. I did trademark the name. Um, mascara is Lashmatic, mm-hmm. which is very true to the period. And you and, actually went and patented and it. I, yes, That's I did. That's so I funny, just like in the book. Yes, yes, I did. It was it was available, and I did pat, I did trademark it. So I don't know. We'll see if someone wants to wants That's to do so it. Funny. I love but it. Um, but yeah, and and then I had to come up with the advertising campaigns, you know, around each of the launches and things like that. So that was easy for me because that's what I do. But mm-hmm. I could see where if someone were writing a book like this, it would be somewhat more challenging for them because it's quite difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it's a gift. It's yeah. it's awesome. Um, do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? Yes, I certainly do. Great. I certainly do. I have one of the best things that I learned through this process and was really an epiphany is that if it's going to be hopefully great, the characters, if you have well-defined characters, write the book. In a certain sense, you're writing the book, but in some senses, the characters write the book. So if you create these defined characters and you place them in a certain part of history, or if, let's say it's a modern-day book, if they're well-defined and they have a motivation, and I'll give you an example of that, then the characters will tell you how they want to solve that chapter or where they want to go. So I'll give you a really fun example of this, okay? And I think you might, um, not to be indiscreet, but let's say you're writing a sex scene, okay? And I was writing a sex scene for these women. And there is one man in the book who also founded a cosmetic company and he did it in a brothel in LA in the 1930s and and that's a whole other story. But if you let's say you're writing a sex scene for a character and you're writing about these amazing, powerful, incredibly dominant um, female entrepreneurs. Well, how would they act in a sex scene? So there's really only two ways to play it. So let's say I was writing Josephine's sex scene. You know, um, can I say this on air? Is this sure. fine? Okay. I mean, either you know, she would she would go against type and she would be submissive, but that's not Josephine's personality. Or she would be on top. And so, which is how I wrote that sex scene. And so for me, you know, she was calling out orders and telling the man what she wanted and how to do it. And that was Josephine's personality. Now, again, that was very clear to me on how Josephine needed to write that. Josephine mm-hmm. actually wrote that scene because I had developed this very dominant female personality. Excellent. 
that makes sense. So women on top. That's the secret to writing. It is no, the secret to always. But, you know, of course, if that's the character. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Moms. Don't have time to read books. I really appreciate it. Zibi, you're the best. And I, and I love your name, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks for having me. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.